Could you turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew or to Mark, excuse me, Mark chapter 6, as we continue to look at the life of Jesus as Mark records it for us. As we've noted along the way, Mark does it a little differently than some of the other Gospels, which often bring in some of their own, um, their own beliefs about Jesus and all kind of all along the way. Mark, after opening up just saying Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, then he just lets us get into the sandals of the first century uh, people and experience Jesus sort of how they might have experienced him. Uh, especially through different events, different uh, uh, things that Jesus did in his life. And as we've seen, we've seen Jesus teaching the crowds as one who had authority. We've seen Jesus healing people, casting out demons, uh, running into occasionally uh, some folks that, that weren't quite sure about what he was doing and why he was doing it. Um, and then most recently... We, we saw Jesus, after teaching the, the people and kind of being pressed by the crowds, getting in the boat with his disciples, heading across the Sea of Galilee. In the midst of that all, there was a great storm. He ends up uh, saying, peace, be still, and calming the storm, showing his power over, over nature. They get to the other side, which was the Decapolis, the, the Gentile territory across the, the Sea of Galilee, and there they encounter a a man with, that was demon-possessed, and he casts out those demons. They get back into the boat. They head back across, probably getting off uh, near Capernaum. A crowd meets them. Jairus, uh, the synagogue ruler, needs his daughter healed. On the way, he ends up healing a woman with, uh, with a bleeding issue. And then by the time they get to, to Jairus's house, the daughter is dead, and he actually raises her from, from dead, the dead. So there's a lot going on, a lot of powerful things that Jesus has done recently. That might be the background for why he ends up going back to his old hometown. I mean, just a, a little explanation here. Matthew tells us that Jesus relocated, and that Jesus moved from Nazareth, where he grew up, and he moved to Capernaum, and that's where he did a lot of his ministry out of. But now, he's going back to Nazareth. We don't know if he's going back to Nazareth because they have invited him, because they've heard all these things that he's doing, or whether he was just on the roster to, to teach in the synagogue because they did have rosters in those days of hometown people that would share God's word and what it meant to them, uh, not necessarily rabbis or professional pastors doing that. And so Jesus might have been on for that. But for whatever reason, he ends up back in his, his home uh, synagogue. Now the picture that's on the screen is actually not the one in Nazareth. This is the one in Capernaum. And it's actually about the 4th century. It was built on top of the one in Capernaum that Jesus would have taught at. But it gives you sort of an idea, a flavor of what a synagogue looks like and gives us the setting. So now as Jesus goes back to Nazareth, uh, it's interesting to see how he is received. So let's take a look at that, verses 1 through 13 of Mark chapter 6. Jesus left there, probably the Capernaum area, and went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things? They asked. What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Now let's just stop right there a moment. 
Wow, who is this guy? He grew up here. Who is this guy doing all these miracles, having this great wisdom? Where did he get it all? And so far, it's really positive, right? The conversation is very positive about Jesus. And the, but they're about to have roast preacher. Verse 3, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. How quickly things turn. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. And then notice this. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. Calling the twelve to him, he began to send them out two by two, gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. We'll conclude our reading at that point. Would you join me in prayer? Father God, as we look at Jesus' visit back to his hometown, help us to reflect on what it means to minister, minister to a world that's not necessarily looking for our ministry, not necessarily accepting it or accepting you. Help us to understand a little bit more what it means to minister in the midst of unbelief. For Jesus' sake, amen. Well, I was in seminary, I did sort of what Jesus did. I went back to my hometown and my home church and preached there as a seminarian. I blush today at how poorly I preached, but I was also a little bit frustrated at the reaction of my friends, their parents, others who knew me as a child. It was as if they were saying, isn't that Fred and Mary's boy? Do you remember when? Evidently, there was some obstacle to the message because of what they remembered about the messenger. Since then, I've always been heartened by Jesus' visit to his hometown, where he commented that no prophet was accepted in his hometown. But there's more going on here than simply bad memories of a hometown boy. If Mark 5 was about faith, the faith of Jairus, the faith of the, the sick woman, then Mark 6 is about unbelief. Now, there were many times in Jesus' life when he was burned by unbelief, when he felt the pain of rejection. But perhaps the pain was most personal when it came from his hometown, Nazareth. He had several encounters with them. Luke 4 tells of his first homecoming sermon in the synagogue there where all spoke well of him. But then Jesus became a bit confrontational with them and they attempted to throw him off a cliff. In Mark 3, 
We see Jesus' family coming from Nazareth to take him back by force if necessary because they said he's out of his mind. In our passage today, we see another attempt on Jesus' part to reach out to the people he's known from childhood. Perhaps his recent display over the, with power over the storm, over demons, over sickness and death would soften them to his claims and perhaps they would receive his ministry. It was not to be so, but in this story we can gain some wisdom regarding ministry to an unbelieving world. Now, Jesus was careful in his approach to the people of his hometown. He he took along his disciples. That would verify his identity as a rabbi. He waited until the Sabbath to minister. There's nothing like uh, him healing people on the Sabbath or any controversies. He was traditional, conventional, and so he would give no offense. But it didn't seem to help. At first, the people were amazed at his wisdom, as knowing that he was an unschooled rabbi, he hadn't studied with any rabbis. They were amazed at his miracles, although they wondered where his power came from. And yet, as the people began to talk, their amazement became contempt. He's just a carpenter. He's a common laborer. He has a Galilean accent, just like us. He's one of us. And then they said something bordering on the insulting. Isn't this Mary's son? Now, that doesn't mean much to us, specifically because perhaps Joseph had already died. But in Jewish culture, you always referred to the man as a, a man as the son of his father. To do otherwise was to hint that he was fatherless, perhaps even illegitimate. These were the people Jesus knew, he grew up with, and it had to hurt badly. And you know, people do the same thing today. Perhaps finding it personally offensive if, if one of them makes good becomes more successful or, or more well-known. Montaigne, a, a, a famous French writer, philosopher, and politician, once said that the greater distance away from home, the greater he became. Which, of course, then the reverse is true. The closer he got to home, the lesser he became. Well, that's what Jesus found out. The reason was perhaps as simple as the old saying, familiarity breeds contempt. I mean, after all, when we get close to others, we see all their wrinkles and all their imperfections, their inconsistencies, contradictions, bad habits, sins. And yet, that's not true of all relationships. Married couples, close friends for for years don't have that same thing, familiarity breeding contempt. Phillips Brooks adjust that phrase. He says, familiarity breeds contempt only with contemptible things or contemptible people. So not so with Jesus, who was perfect. There were no flaws. There were no inconsistencies with him. And in fact, through the Gospels, generally, the better people got to know him, the more growing of a respect 
developed among them in most cases unless they had a motive to hate him. So what was Nazareth's reason for being offended? And actually the word is much stronger than that. It's the the Greek word scandalizo. You can probably recognize that the word scandalized comes from it. They were scandalized. What caused them to be scandalized? Well, I think it's because knowing his claims, knowing what he was saying about himself and who he was, they were faced with that trilemma that we talked about uh, a number of weeks ago that C.S. Lewis points out for us. If you examine the traits of Jesus, you can only put him in one of three camps. He's either Lord, lunatic, or liar. If he's not the Lord and, but says he is, then he either is lying about it or he's either uh, a lunatic. He's either insane. No one would say that in their right minds. Well, perhaps they chose liar or maybe uh, along with his family said he's mad. They couldn't explain him and so they rejected him. Now we don't have that same danger, that danger of physical familiarity with Jesus. He's not living among us in human form as he was then, and there's no incarnation going on right now as far as Jesus living in our physical presence. And so that's not going to cause that kind of response to Jesus on our part. But we do have to be careful about spiritual familiarity, especially with what we might call religion. When we get too religious versus Christian, and there's a difference between the two, when we get too religious, it can dull us to the deep demands of our faith. For instance, we have our own Christian lingo, and if we've grown up in the church all our lives, we become very comfortable with that lingo to the point where it maybe doesn't mean anything to us anymore. It becomes everyday stuff, but it's not. Jesus Christ in our life is an ongoing miracle. So words we might be overly familiar with like incarnation or grace or born again are, are beautiful and mysterious words and ideas and we can't lose that. We must never let our growing familiarity with Jesus or, or the Christian faith rob us of the wonder and demands of that faith in the way that it seems to have robbed the people of Nazareth of their ability to see Jesus for who he really was. So what was the effect on Jesus? The Bible shows us throughout the Gospels in particular that there are two things that amaze Jesus. Faith, the faith of some people, and lack of faith, the lack of faith of some people. And here he's astounded with the lack of faith of his own people. They were spiritually cold. And that still happens today. People see the power of God in others' lives, even in their own families, and, but just blow it off or rationalize it. People reject church and therefore Christ using the excuse, well, the church is full of hypocrites. Of course it is. We're all admitted sinners. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all hypocritical in one way or another. Jesus and the Holy Spirit are, are working on that in us. But God's not through with us yet. But there's a great difference between being admitted sinners 
and people who are unresponsive to Jesus Christ, who have, whose love has grown cold. There's a story about a couple of Scottish preachers, one who was attending the other's church, perhaps in retirement. And uh, it goes uh, that the Scottish preacher, A.J. Gossip, I'm not sure that's a great name for a pastor, A.J. Gossip, had the once more, more famous Alexander White ask him why he wasn't at the evening service as usual. Gossip replied that he was preaching to a certain congregation. And how did you get on, asked White. I found it very cold, answered Gossip. Cold, cried White. Cold? I preached there two years ago and I've yet to get the chill out of my bones. Sometimes we come into situations that are just cold. And that must have been how Jesus felt as he went to Nazareth and found himself a prophet without honor. But it not just, did not just chill Jesus' bones. Here we find that unbelief also puts a chill on God's power. A chill on God's power. He couldn't do any miracles there. I'm not sure 100% how to read that. But I would say at, le- at the very least, he was morally compelled not to show his power because of the lack of faith. Perhaps it was reflective of what Jesus would say in the Sermon on the Mount. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. The idea being you don't just flippantly throw God's word out and to a group that you know is going to just trample it. In some way, unbelief freezes the exercise of God's power. And it can also rob the church of his power. A church can add more programs, preach better sermons, witness more effectively in the community, but without the believing expectancy of Jesus Christ and his power, nothing will come of it. If we want to please God, know his pleasure and power, we have to truly believe. Do we? Remember, Christ was amazed both at faith and at the lack of faith. What about us amazes him? Well, as they've been following Jesus, his disciples had learned some important things. They saw astounding displays of his power, but now they see his power being subverted by a lack of faith. They understood. To serve him, they must believe. But they also saw it wouldn't be easy out there. If Jesus couldn't work in some situations, in some hearts, how could they Well, nonetheless, Jesus calls and commissions 12 apostles who were sent out, that's what the word apostle means, sent out with his authority. Jesus, we read, sent his disciples out two by two. In the Greek, it's literally duo, duo. So I guess you could say they were the first dynamic duos. Now, this served a number of purposes. In the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 19, verse 15, God told the people of Israel that that legal witness or evidence demanded two witnesses, not just one, but two witnesses. 
And that carries on in the Bible, and we see these two witnesses constantly throughout the Gospels. So that may be part of the purpose here. Of course, it also, having them go out in pairs, sets up a structure of accountability and support where partners can keep each other on message and and bolster one another when there is rejection, as Jesus promised there would be. But also, having kingdom partners points out that being sent, evangelism, is meant to be a relational process. A relational process. No person has all the gifts or knowledge to evangelize in his or her own. We're meant to do so communally. In addition to the Holy Spirit, we need each other. God created us with varying personalities, passions, and spiritual gifts. And some personalities reach certain people better than others. We're all gifted differently. And so we need others to shore up our own weaknesses, to answer questions we don't know how to answer. And of course, the pool from which to draw kingdom partners who can come alongside us is the church. And so we would do well to learn from Jesus as he sent his disciples out and that we go out in that same relational way. But then he, he sends them out with uh, three sets of instructions. Verses 8 and 9. He says, Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, bag, money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. So in other words, no excess baggage. Now, there's one obvious thing behind this, but there may be something else that we, we might miss because uh, we are Jewish, don't have a Jewish background. There was a rabbinic law that when entering the temple, a man had to set aside his staff, his shoes, his money belt, and anything he was carrying. No ordinary things were allowed in the sacred house of God. Perhaps... Jesus wanted them to regard every person's house that they came into as sacred and worthy in God's sight. But the more obvious and overlying reason, of course, was that they needed dependence on Christ for their strength, for their provision. Maximum or minimum provisions called for maximum faith. And we also must take care not to, to have excess baggage. Too many goods draw us away, keep us from a dependent faith on Jesus Christ. He goes on in verse 10. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. He cautioned them to stay at one house per community and not to pick and choose accommodations to suit their comfort. They were not on a pleasure tour. They were on a mission as servants of Jesus Christ, not pampered guests. True world-changing Christianity is not necessarily comfortable. So what happens if they're rejected? Well, Jesus says in verse 11, And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Now Jesus is not calling for a short fuse here. But understand what's going on. There was a custom among the Jews that when they would return home from other countries, from Gentile territory, when they got to the border, they would shake the dust of their feet, the dust from those alien lands, from that Gentile territory. And in doing so, they believed was a witness against them, 
the Gentiles, disassociated them from the sin and pollution of the pagan lands and disassociated them from the coming judgment that was going to come on the Gentile people, on the pagan people. So imagine being in Israel, knowing that custom and seeing that happen to your village when disciples of Jesus come and they leave and they shake the dust off their feet. In other words, if a village turned away from them like Nazareth did Jesus, the apostles' action was essentially to call that village pagan. It was a powerful symbol. And yet could be a merciful symbol. It was designed to make them, the people, think deeply about their spiritual condition. It undoubtedly made a strong impression and may have even brought some to grace as they realized their lack of faith. And at times the church today must also warn the world, our culture, of their sins and God's judgment, sometimes even disassociating ourselves. Then we read at the end, verses 12 and 13, they went out and preached that people should repent and they drove out demons, they anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. So the, the, the apostles experienced great power in bringing the gospel to an unbelieving world. And it's a foretaste of what the church can do when it operates in the power of the Holy Spirit and not in our own strength. Are we committed to ministering in the midst of our unbelieving society through a dependence on Jesus Christ? In the power of the Holy Spirit, let's pray. Father God, we pray that as we uh, go out into this week, wherever you have called us to go, whomever's path you have called us to cross, we pray that we go focused on you and your power and not trying to do things in our own strength and that we may be focused on you with faith in you that you will do what you want to accomplish in those lives that we come in contact with. We pray that we might be able to minister, even in a society that decreasingly believes in you. Help us to do so, Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.